Let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 78. You guys know what time lapse is? Time lapse photography? Of course you do, probably. You see it used quite a bit in nature documentaries where they take something that was generally moving very, very slowly and they record it in such a way so they can show you the full development of it in a very short period of time and it gives you a great perspective. I just recently ran across a great time lapse that was done by an astronaut who had been on the space station for six months or something and he had the wherewithal and the foresight to do some of that photography and uh, if you find a space station time lapse if you've got the internet capacity to go look at that it's amazing it really does stir your heart towards praise for the creator this morning we're actually we're going to see some time lapse in a lot of ways psalm 78 is actually the second longest psalm in the bible being 72 verses long, second only to, of course, Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm. But Psalm 78, being a contemplation of Asaph, as it says there, he invites us to look in time-lapse fashion at the history of Israel up until that point to gain some perspective, really to learn from history. He calls us right away to an understanding that That's exactly what he knows he's doing. He's going to speak things of instruction from the history of Israel. Verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength, and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, or more literally, did not prepare its heart, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So that's the general meaning of why he is writing, he tells us. There's an intent on his part to go back and look at the history, but not just so that we would know it, but so that we could grasp what is going on, what the Lord is doing, what the Lord wants to do, what the Lord's heart is towards us, but also that we would be equipped and have the Lord's heart in communicating to the next generation and how important that is to the Lord, that any fellowship of believers, of course, any parent who knows the Lord has got that in their heart and find that also in the Lord's heart, communicate to the next generation what the Lord has done. Look how it's loaded in here very, very strongly. Really, I think there's five generations that the Lord's got his eyes on. First, there's the fathers. He established a testimony that they could command to their children. That might be maybe the writer of Asaph if you put him anywhere in there. But then it's that their children, so that the generation to come may know them. That's after them. The children who would be born, that they may arise. There's the third. And declare them to their children. Or fifth, I lost count there maybe, but I think there's four or five generations that the Lord is obviously thinking of and preparing people to reach. How important that is. Look at the four things that that he's got in mind here in verse 7. That they may set their hope in God. 
Boy, if there's anything that the generations coming up are going to need, it is hope. With our country, you know, heading in directions that are unrecognizable, next generation is going to need to be firmly grounded in something more than the American dream because that's changing rapidly. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things that brought me to the Lord was, the, was to get right in the middle of the American dream and realize it was just a dead hope. It brought you things, but it didn't do kind of the large-scale, life-giving thing that kind of is loaded and without so many words, it's kind of handed to, to as you go and you present, you know, you go through school and you get your college and education, all the things. Those are all good. But for me, it, it kind of translated to there was, it would be bringing something more than that, and it didn't. It was a dead hope, and it brought me to the Lord. That's what we want to communicate to the next generation. But also, but to keep his commandments, end of verse 7, obedience to the Lord. Again, we want to reach that next generation, and that's the Lord's heart, to bring them into a place where they begin to walk in obedience to the Lord. How important that is for any fellowship of believers to have their eyes on the next generation and beyond that. You know, it's rightly said, the fellowship that doesn't evangelize will fossilize. We need to be having a heart towards the kids, a very large heart to reach them, to bless them, let them know that they are loved by the Lord. Not forget his works also is what he has said he is speaking towards. That they may set their hope in God, verse 7, and not forget the works of God. The idea about all of these is so that they would not repeat the rebellions of their forefathers. That they would look at where people have been with the Lord and learn from them. So here we go. Verses 9 through the end of the psalm are just exactly that, our time lapse. It's going to move very quickly through these events that are probably familiar to you. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Now, now uh, we don't know exactly what verse 9, 10, 11 is referring to. There's, unfortunately, lots of options. And uh, the specifics, we can't tag it to one thing. It could be that that you know, classic failure that we know them failing to enter into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. It could be that. It could be later on in their uh, history when they did not drive out all the tribes that they were called to. You know, even under uh, Samuel and David and Solomon, they still didn't drive out all the, all the Canaanites and things. It could be that they're also referring to something much later, after Solomon, when the nation split. The northern tribes went their own way in rebellion against Solomon's son. It could be any of that. Most scholars think that this is just a generalized allegory about their overall failure. You've got to notice something about, about the history of Israel, and, and that is that up until about the time of David, really the tribe of Ephraim is preeminent. They're kind of the leader. They're the most um, talked about. The tribe of Judah, of course, that David comes from, really is kind of a minor player. They are talked about here and there, but uh, it's not until David comes on the scene and then uh, Jerusalem is selected to be where the temple will eventually rest that Judah comes into preeminence. Before that, it's Ephraim. Ephraim is the place where 
the tabernacle that has been with them through the wilderness wanderings is going to remain. It's going to have a permanent resting home in a city called Shiloh, and it's going to stay there. But eventually, because of their failures here, the city of Shiloh and the tabernacle is going to be rejected. And that center of God's worship is going to move from Ephraim down to the city of Jerusalem. So um, the, the analogy here, the, the allegory here, talking about a very little literal thing, but it's used kind of in, in symbolic language. They were armed and carrying bows. The idea there is, is being outfitted and equipped by God. They knew where they were supposed to go, what they were supposed to do. They got right up to it, and it's like a switch went off. And they couldn't figure out what they wanted to do. They couldn't come up with a reason to continue to obey God. They, couldn't, they didn't draw anything from their history. And really, as they stood there, they said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And that's put out there as a really, really bad example. And he goes on and explains here, I think, in many different ways, verse 12 through 16, uh, many different ways about how they have failed. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers. Here's one of the things they could have drawn from. They should have been using to understand God's heart towards them, what God had done for them in history. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zon. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. You recognize them this as the Red Sea crossing. He made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime, also, he led them with the cloud. Again, immediately after that, the children of Israel were led by a cloud during the day, uh, a cloud overshadowing the whole camp of Israel, and then also, and all night, all the night with a light of fire over that tabernacle that they built in the first two years of being in the wilderness, the Lord placed a pillar of fire, and so they could see what the Lord was doing and know that he was still in their midst. Uh, what a dramatic, powerful demonstration of his, his presence with them. But there's more. It's more than just the Red Sea, more than just the cloud, more than just the fire. Verse 15, he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like river. And they get out in the middle of the desert, no water, a lot of people. They need water. The Lord graciously provides an enormous supply of water for some 2 million people. That's a lot of water on a daily basis. And the Lord provides it miraculously. It comes flowing out of a rock. Obviously, supernatural demonstration of God's power and his care, his presence, his grace. Verse 17, a commentary already. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, or look, he struck the rocks so the waters gushed out like, yeah, he can do that. And the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Out of Numbers 11, you'll find this. When they got out there, they caved in to some of their own cravings. And they, as it says, verse 18, they tested God in their hearts, or they tried him. 
they pushed him out there to a place where he's going to have to be patient with them. What they're doing is, well, let's read because there's more commentary here. Therefore, the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had, notice the verb, this is what he had done. He had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. Again, there's the back in 19 and 20, there's their conversation talking to, about the Lord, saying, okay, yeah, he's provided water. Now we need something to eat. So the Lord, as it says here, you know the history, that, that funny bread-like substance that God provided every day for them, enough for two million people to eat. That's a lot of food. Uh, how many tons is that every day? They'd be able to go up, pick that up every day, eat, but that wasn't enough for them. It says that can, they say, can he provide meat for his people? The idea is, okay, what you've provided is nice, Lord, in their kind of unbelieving, ungrateful way. Lord, I, we see that you've provided this way, but we're still loaded with cravings here. And so can you do more than what you've already done for us? Because we're not satisfied with it. You get the feel for the ungratefulness that's loaded into that, that thinking. It says, verse 26, He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and this power brought in the south wind. The wind would come from the southeast. He also rained meat on them like dust, bringing in a large flock of quail. A huge number of quail are blown in by this uh, anomalous weather pattern the Lord has orchestrated. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. So they ate and were well filled. So they go out craving for meat, not satisfied with what God has provided. The Lord meets them there graciously, but remember this is born out of their grumbling and complaining. It's not born out of, wow, I'd really like to see the Lord glorified in a larger way. That's not it. It's it's, we want something else than what you have provided. And that's a bad thing. And the commentary is right here, verse middle of verse 29. For, they, for he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving. Verse 30 is really, they were not separated from their lust. In their ongoing faithlessness, they came to the Lord and acted on that lust, asking for, for him to, to help them meet it. And then the unfortunate thing is that the Lord had to meet him there. He didn't want to. But in order for them to learn their lesson, they had to, and this might sound familiar to you, give them what they wanted. Verse 30, But while their food was in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. You know, it's one thing to have this happen, to see this happen. You know, we're all capable of doing this kind of thing, to be ungrateful and not satisfied and content with what the Lord has. It's another thing to have this happen and learn nothing from it, which is what happened to them. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. 
Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. Verse 32 and 33 is about their failure to enter the promised land at Kanesh Barnea. Um, Despite all that he had done, all that he had shown them, they got to the edge of the promised land and refused to go in, uh, refusing to believe that God would care for them. And, you know, that's, that's a kind of a lesson in itself, isn't it? I mean, it's one type of faith that, by which you can be saved and come out of the world. It's another f- step of faith to go into what the Lord wants you to do and to go forward in the Lord. And they never made that step. And again, this is, these are the lessons that are held out for us to look at and for them to look at so they could pass it on to their kids and to the next generation. Verse 34, here's some commentary on their state, their walk with the Lord. When he slew them, then they sought him. That's a sad commentary. Only turn to the God when there's a significant amount of pain and suffering. Uh, it should not be so, right? It shouldn't have been so with them to only turn to the Lord out of misery. The Lord doesn't want that for anybody to bring us to him. He prefer to have us hear the gospel when we're old enough age to think about it and rationally make a choice and come to him. I wish it had been that way with me. You know, at a young age, hear the gospel and say, that makes sense. Wow, I'm going to receive the Lord. Unfortunately, both in coming to the Lord and later on in life, it frequently takes a bit of pain to get us to consider what the Lord is saying and to move us into obedience. When he slew them, then he sought, then they sought him. And they returned and sought earnestly for the Lord. But they're going to comment here and say this is really only a half-hearted thing. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High, their Redeemer. Remember, only after painful circumstances. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. And they lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast with him. uh, Nor were they faithful in his covenant. You know... Their heart is not steadfast here. They, they're saying just enough and moving just enough towards the Lord to find some relief. And once they get some relief, they stop again going forward in the Lord. So it's com- comments on that this way, verse, seven, their, their, verse 37. Their heart was not steadfast with him. But here's, you know, it's a kind of an ugly picture put out there so far. But it's matched up right against God's kindness and his forgiveness and his enduring patience, his mercy, verse 38. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh. They were just flesh. They're only flesh. A breath that passes away and does not come again. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They're they're trying God again and again, tempting him, trying his patience, bringing him to a place where, wow, uh, the Lord has has to... show a great deal of patience. And then also in limited the Holy One of Israel. How did they limit them? And what does that mean to limit God? Well, 
again, the example is uh, because they did not believe God, they weren't content with what he gave, they were not uh, accepting his will for their life out of humility, they hung on to the cravings of their flesh for things in this world. And so that put them in a place where God's will for them was going in one direction. That's where God wanted to take them. But their hearts were pointed in another direction. And so, not willing to go with God into what he has for them, the blessings of obedience, the working out of his will in their lives, not wanting to do that in obedience and holiness, the Lord wouldn't let them go in another direction of longing for things of the world and craving. They're just kind of stuck, not really going anywhere. And that's limiting the Lord when there's a difference of opinion there, right, on where we should go. Again, when that happens in our lives, we know who's at fault there, right? It's us. It's not the Lord. But verse 42 through 54 here now, he's going to reflect on the most prominent part of their history again and really was the centerpiece of God's demonstration of his power on their behalf. And it was really kind of God's calling card. When they talked about God and his power, the standard and the height of his power was the God who led you out of Egypt. And they're supposed to remember what that meant. Here it is, verse 42. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zon. And here he's going to review six of the ten plagues. He turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. That was the first plague. He sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them. That's the fourth plague, a plague of flies. One thing to notice about all these plagues also is they were assaults on the false gods of Egypt. All of these things that the Lord is using and to cause pain and suffering and misery to Egypt were all things they worshipped. They worshipped the Nile as the life giver, and yet here it has turned to blood, and it's bringing death. Uh, flies, their, their god, I think Semiramis, was supposed to protect them from these things, and yet he's totally helpless in face of the flies that came in that the Lord called for. And then also, middle of verse 45, and frogs which destroyed them. The frogs were a symbol of fertility, but uh, this plague of frogs... Everything's got frogs in it to the point where it's, you couldn't live, you couldn't walk, you couldn't eat, you could nothing. There was just frogs everywhere. Again, it was an assault on their gods. Their gods are not true. Verse 46, he also gave their crops to the caterpillar, um, locusts. That was the eighth plague. He destroyed their vines with hail. That is the seventh plague. And their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. Uh, it says there in, in Exodus that not only was there a plague of hail, but it seems to have been an immense, well, it says fire mixed with hail. If we're going to try to understand what that is, maybe that's a severe lightning outbreak going with a, some catastrophic hail storms. You know, we, we see them on the worst weather ever shows on cable or whatever you got 
you know, softball-sized hailstones that would wipe out everything if it was uh, allowed to continue. Mix that with lightning. Egypt is, was being reduced to a very vulnerable state through these plagues. And then the last one, verse 49, he cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn of Egypt, the first of their strength, and the tenths of Ham. Ham was a grandson of Noah, and in the Table of Nations, Genesis 10, it talks about him going down and, and being the forefather of Egypt. So sometimes Egypt is called uh, the tents of Ham. And so the plague. The plague finally pushes Pharaoh to the breaking point, and, Israel, and uh, Egypt, they say, finally, get out, leave. And so, verse 52, this history they're supposed to draw on, verse 52, he made his own people go forth like sheep. This is a very peaceful kind of uh, turn of the text there with all this catastrophe and the plague suddenly out comes this group of people leaving under the watchful shepherding care of the Lord he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock and he led them on safely so that they did not fear but the sea overwhelmed their enemies of course that's the Red Sea again And then going forward, verse 54, he brought them to his holy border. This mountain, which his right hand had acquired, again, if you go back and you see who, again, Asaph wrote it, this mountain would be talking about bringing them to Israel and Jerusalem. Now this is the time of Joshua. He also drove out the nations before them and allotted them an inheritance by survey and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Again, this is, this is probably uh, biblical history. It's familiar to you. It would be very familiar to them. And they were too, supposed to draw a great deal of learning from this. Verse 56 goes on with the commentary, talking about the time of Judges and Samuel, getting a feel for the time lapse that's going on here. We're moving very quickly through things. And seeing the large-scale goodness of the Lord and the ongoing failures of people who were supposed to be following him. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God, did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. Uh, I don't know if you have any uh, experience with archery. Back then it was just the simple traditional bows, And if you had a bow that wasn't built right, that arm would bend in some funny direction when you tried to pull it back and shoot it. You don't know where that that arrow is going. Totally useless if you try to hit a target. Boing, it's going. That bow is worthless. Uh, For they provoked him to anger with their high places, the idolatry that they were continuously falling into, and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. Okay, he's sort of anthropomorphizing God there. God didn't like somehow tune in and discover this happening. He was aware of it all the time. But the, the writer is just simply saying, in some way, God is now beginning to take stock of that, and he's, he's acting on it. 
so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. Here's our commentary on Ephraim, right? Why Ephraim was put out there as an example. He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent that he had placed among them, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. Uh, When you read the biblical narrative, does it ever dawn on you what happened to the tabernacle? We don't know. It moved again. When they came into the land, they set up the worship site in Ephraim at the city of Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was. And then it just isn't talked about anymore. There's a time here that it's referring to in 1 Samuel 4. We get through the judges. The last of the judges, Samuel, the first of the prophets, is, is on the scene as a, uh, a child. And Israel is um, deeply backslidden. The high priest is Eli. His sons are Hophni and Phinehas. And they're rotten guys. Terrible. And they are having to, the, city, the nation of Israel is having to go up against the Philistines. And they're really having, uh, they're losing continuously. The Lord is giving them in to the Philistines' hands. And so in their desperation to see something happen, they start thinking very superstitiously. The nation of Israel does. They say, let's go get our lucky rabbit's foot, the ark. Let's bring it out to battle and that'll help us. And there's a whole lot of enthusiasm for that bad idea and... And the Philistines don't know what's going on. The Philistines attack and they fight and the Ark is captured. The Lord allows that Ark of the Covenant to be taken by the Philistines. That's what it means when it says, verse 61, delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. Uh, The Ark goes into the Philistines. The Philistines have it for a while. Wow, bad news for them. The biblical narrative says they broke out with sores it's, it's the same word that they use for, the Lord doesn't want me to say it. I can't remember what it is. Bad thing. We'll get on. <laughs> he also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Some 30,000 people die that day in battle. The ark ends up in the camp of the Philistines. And then it moves forward again in our time lapse to David, and it says it this way, Then the Lord awoke as from a sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine. Now the Lord is not asleep, and he's not drinking, but in those days they would build up their courage for battle with a little bit of, a little bit of wine, and that would, that would enliven them in courage and enthusiasm before the battle. So he's just drawing on that. And he beat back his enemies and put them to a perpetual reproach. It's as if when that happened, the Lord said, okay, that's enough. Let's, we're going to try a new paradigm here. We're going to go pick a man, and we're going to put him, uh, somebody after my own heart, and we're going to put, the, put the, uh, the worship in Jerusalem. And it was a time of blessing and exaltation of the nation of Israel. And they knew it was the Lord, again, in our time lapse were to draw perspective from that. Moreover, he rejected the tents of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has established forever. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young. From following the ewes that had young, he brought them to shepherd Jacob his people. 
and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. The psalm ends there with a very pastoral, very uh, peaceful sort of image there. Again, the, the beginning of the, of the text invited us to learn from history. And so I want you to turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Lest we, lest we end up looking at them with no self-examination. Because really, Israel's history can be our history if we do not learn from what they have done and where they have been and how they have both served the Lord faithfully and have not. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now all these things happen to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed or pay attention lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it or stand up under it. Every way in which they failed, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, we are capable of failing. They failed to pass on to the next generation. They did not take God's heart seriously in that, and the children reaped the consequences of it. You know, that's the first thing I think we need to leave this time lapse of God's people's history with, the importance of reaching the next generation. And, you know, I always say this to us and to those who will hear, think about your own life in terms of how it would have been different if you had been the beneficiary of a spirit-filled children's ministry that had led you to the Lord when you were, say, six years old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old? How different would life have been for you? Okay, yeah, I can see you guys rolling your eyes going, oh, my. Yeah, pray for the children's ministries because that's exactly what we have in mind, what the Lord has in mind. Reach those next kids, those next generation. But more than that, you know, there's a few places here that we have looked at where God's heart is shown, you know, in, in some ways, as we look at their text, look at their history, the ways that they are culpable, we are more so, because we have greater light. Um, they uh, had a great deal of what the things that God had done for them, but we have the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and we have a full explanation of that, of what it means in God's word. And we are more responsible. Really, you've got to measure out responsibility by the light that is given. They had some light. They had, they had a lot of things that they could have drawn from. We more so. We look back with a lot of clarity on what Jesus has done. Do we have any reason to complain against the Lord, to rebel against him, to limit him? I'd say we don't, and more so than they. It says that they tested God. They tried God. Are we replacing God's will with our own? You know, it's a mark of ungratefulness for the Lord's work when we are ungrateful for what he has given and what he has provided. Are we unmoved by his work on our behalf, by him personally providing for us? When we are not grateful for that, we're essentially dismissing what he has done. 
Instead, we crave for something else. We don't want to be like that. We're going to learn from their history. It says that in verse, in verse 18, they tested God in their hearts. Verse 29, they ate and were well fed, for he gave them their own desire. Verse 30, they were not deprived of their craving. Here's another temptation that came upon them that will come upon us also. Um, you know, it seems like the last few weeks, um, the Lord has been talking to us about the desires, the things that are coming out of our hearts. You know, in the New Testament, we are called to constantly monitor and police, keep a watchful eye on the state of our hearts and what's coming out of them. Not only so that we can refuse the ungodly things, but to be aware that they are coming out of our hearts and recognize that we need a change of heart. And, of course, in the New Testament, we are given something that they were not given, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on a permanent basis. Uh, And he invites us to ask, to seek, and to knock for that change of heart. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to keep ourselves in God's word, in prayer and in worship, so that we can guard against the evil that would come out of our hearts if we would just leave it to our own cravings. Psalm 37 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Give you that in a good way. If you're going to delight yourself in the Lord, then you're free to do whatever you want because your delight will be in what the Lord wants. We don't want to be on the path like Israel and have the Lord meet us in a place where he gives us our own desires, and those desires are not what he wants. Uh, There's other ways in which they failed and which they were tempted. We are not going to go there. We We shouldn't go there. Verse 37 in Psalm 78 for their heart was not steadfast with him. That means essentially that their heart moved away from the Lord. Steadfast means it stays put. Not steadfast means it's going to move away. You know, the, the heart isn't moved by itself. It stays where its affections are. It's kind of self-motivated. If my heart is moving away from the Lord, it's because I have affections for something other than the Lord. Do you remember the days before you graduated from high school, maybe in junior high, and you had your first crush, you remember that, and you just couldn't bear to, you know, to not even see that person, that you had to write your name on the book cover, and, you know, you were just thrilled to say hi to them. Don't laugh at me. I know you did it too. (laughs) Look, those days of first love, why can't they be for the Lord? I think they can. I think they should be. I think we should be in love with the Lord that way. I think we should be so enamored with his name, with who he is, with what he has done, that we ought to have hearts that only are motivated to move closer to him. A heart that is moving away is drawn off by affections for something else. We're called to take stock of that and not be like that. So look how he has loved you. Look at what he has done. He's taken your sin upon himself. Made it as his own. Made himself personally responsible for it and suffered the full consequences for it. All sin, past and present. Future, the debt's been paid. Then he rises from the dead for you, for me, and gives you new life in him. He ascends to heaven to be your personal representative there where he himself will intercede for you on a daily basis. 
and he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in you permanently. These things ought to inflame our hearts with love for him. Verse 11, if we go back and see what they did and we ought not to do, verse 78, uh, chapter 78, Psalm 78, verse 11, they forgot his works. You know, it's such a crime to go a, a, a few minutes without thinking about the Lord's love and his goodness towards us and how the cross and his resurrection affect me right here, right now. Verse 41 says, they again tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Is there a difference of opinion between you and God about the direction of life and what he wants you to do, what he's calling you to do, what he's calling you to walk away from and go towards? You know, where are you telling him no? Uh, look, he'll, he will wait as long as he can, but there are limits. There are limits because he, there are things he wants to get done, and he's going to see to it that they get done, and he wants to use you. But if we refuse and, and we will not obey him faithfully, he'll find somebody else to do it. And we'll miss out on the blessings of seeing him work in us and through us, the joy that that brings. The Lord wants to use you. He's fully capable of using you by his Holy Spirit. You can be empowered to do that. Look, go back to the beginning of Psalm 78. It says, verse 5, The Lord established a testimony in Jacob. Do you know that the Lord has established a testimony in you? He does. He has something he wants to tell the world. He wants to tell your neighborhood, the people you work with, your family, and he wants to use your life. He wants you, that testimony that's coming through you to impact your family, your kids, your grandkids. We need to be depending on him and looking to him, seeking him daily in worship, in prayer, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in his word, and in worship. Amen? Let's stand and we'll finish there. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your graciousness in wanting to use us. Lord, we look to you and to your goodness and your grace. Holy Spirit that you have given, Lord, to accomplish those things. Glorify yourself in us, Lord. That's our desire. And we offer you our hearts and minds for that purpose. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.